Digital marketing seems to be the mystery that most entrepreneurs struggle with, and real estate investors are no exception. The truth is, there are multiple avenues to success. Those experiences will be best shared by the guests on this podcast. My name is Jason Wright, and I would like to welcome you to Real Estate Investor Marketing Stories. What is going on? Jason Wright here. Welcome to another episode of the show. This is uh, episode number 15. So almost, uh, well, exactly 15% of the way through our goal to get into that first 100. We are making progress, my friends. We do have another awesome guest today on the show. This is your first time listening. You don't know this, but if you're a returning listener, you know that I generally start off with some random thoughts of mine. Maybe it's therapy for me. Maybe it's therapy for you. Maybe it's therapy for, for both of us. Who knows? So this is something I think about a lot, and it's kind of a question uh, that I want you to think about for yourself. The matchup today is between direct calls to action with your marketing versus attraction-based marketing. So for example, direct call to action is, hey, click this button, book a call now. Right? Attraction-based is doing what you do, creating content, putting yourself out there, and by resonating with potential investors, they'll reach out to you, see what you've got going on. So what do you typically do? Are you a direct CTA type of person, aggressive to the point, or are you more attraction-based, let them come to you? It's interesting because, as you probably know, both methods can be successful. I think you've got to be authentic to who you are, though. So I tested a bunch of this. For me personally, I think there is a time and place for both. I tend to lean more to the attraction-based marketing because it's more natural for me. Uh, I don't like begging or strongly encouraging people to do stuff, but there's definitely time and place for it uh, if there's a reason. If there's a uh, an emotional point people reach, you can use call to action to say, hey, this is how to make the problem go away or whatever. Uh, fear of missing out, urgency can be really powerful. Urgency is probably my favorite. Uh, really powerful selling tools as well. So it's something to think about. If you've been doing one, if you've been focused on direct calls to action that's not working, maybe it's time to try something new. Something to think about. All right, my guest today is David McElwain, client of mine, good friend, pretty interesting guy. Now, let me tell you what I know about him. He's the founding partner and managing principal of a company called Mac Assets. He is the general partner of at least a thousand doors with Mac Assets throughout the Southeast and kind of the Mountain West area. So pretty cool stuff there. David's got a lot of experience in real estate, all facets of real estate, uh, really expanding more than 20 years. And he also has a podcast, so he is the host of his own show. It is called Breaking Your Golden Handcuffs. When I recorded this with David, I told him, I was like, dude, this is one of the best podcasts I've ever done. I really enjoyed it. I uh, really, really enjoyed it. You know, every guest has a different connection, right? So this one I think you'll really enjoy. Without delaying it any further... Let's listen in on our conversation. Hey, David. Welcome to the show, man. Good to have you. Hey, Jason. Great to be here, man. Glad you joined me. I'm excited about this. I don't know this story in its entirety, so I can't wait to hear what you have to say, but tell me how you got started down the road of real estate investing. Well, my journey is a 25-year journey. I was a corporate executive. I was making big bank, didn't know what to do with it. And I got into a passive investment with my father-in-law in the early 2000s after owning 
single family for myself and then owning rentals for what was then a VRBO only and vacation homes and uh, trying to make money in one way or another outside of the stock market. Where it really accelerated was when I got laid off twice in 18 months from the great corporate America infrastructure after nailing budgets and reversing negative growth and delivering Series B capital. Twice in 18 months, I got cleaned out for things that were unrelated to any of my revenue-producing performance. I was hitting out of the park, man. I was a rock star in my first deal. We went through a merger. I had hit nine consecutive quarters of quota prior to the start of that quarter. So in other words, for Q2, I hit it the day before I got laid off the last day of Q1. Nine times in a row. That, in case you forgot, is two years. Got screwed. Man. Went through a rough divorce. They're all rough in some way, shape, or form. Uh, ended up as a CRO of a tech startup. Was brought in to reverse a two-year downward trend. Reversed the two-year downward trend. Got Series B funding executed and in the bank. The day after the money hit the bank, the CEO says, Hey, David, guess what? What? We paid off all our debt. Huh? What debt? The books hadn't shown any debt, and the CEO hadn't told me about it. A week later, I'm on the beach again. I'd seen this movie several times. My dad had gone through it. I've seen a lot of friends go through it when I was growing up in Oklahoma in the 80s and the oil bust and the SNL crisis. And I made decisions along the way prior to this happening to me that made sure that the golden handcuffs I experienced were not going to own me. And I built plans. So when I got broomed the first time, I had a plan. When I got broomed the second time, I changed careers and became a real estate guy. I was going to be a flipper. I had a pretty good nest egg, but my divorce cost me more than I thought it would. How many of us can relate to that? And then B, the market was skyrocketing in, in volatility and cost. And what I looked at as a flipper was, hey, there's no way I'm going to put 300K at risk for a $30,000 profit. That's bad risk-adjusted returns. Yeah. And I just decided to start slinging houses. So I became a realtor and I hated it. I'm still an agent. I love helping people, but I hate the salesiness of being an agent. And a biggest, the biggest part of being an agent is not the actual real estate work. It's marketing yourself. And I believe it or not, I hate marketing myself. So I, I spent seven years as an agent. Year three, I formed my own brokerage. I was in a uh, meeting for i -Corps. I'm based here in Denver, and it's called the Investment Community of the Rockies, and there was a speaker talking about buying multifamily. In the course of one minute, I sat down and changed my entire business plan. He made one point that resonated with me so cellularly, if that's a good word, cellular, to my DNA, to the core of who I was, that everything changed. Yeah. He said, why buy one apartment if you can buy 100? And he's right. And within a year, I had 1,000 doors as a general partner. I'd sold my small portfolio and went big. So that's how I got into it. Man, that's a cool story. I love it because it's so real. Some people you talk to, they just... They moved into it, not out of necessity, out of, let's try something new, but your story is so real. And I'll tell you, I have one experience with the doing things right and getting laid off. It's different, but I just, I feel like talking about it because it was so, so. Yeah, let's, let's get down in the weeds. 
I was working at FedEx Freight and I was a regional HR manager who was not qualified in any way for the role. So I got this, at the time, it was like this big deal job for us. And my wife was pregnant. And I remember my daughter was due in three weeks. Oh, dear goodness. Working, and I was traveling Indiana and Illinois. I had eight service centers there. And we were going through a merger with FedEx National. So when I got hired, people were like, we have drivers from the same parent company hitting the same docks every day. Surely that's not sustainable. So there was rumors for like 10 months or a year. Then finally they're like, yeah, we're going to merge because it makes no sense that we're competing against ourselves. I was in HR and one day it was like, hey, group over here, you're all going to lose your jobs. And literally the next day, it's just kidding. It's you guys. And it was this crazy mess, this emotional roller coaster. And I'll never forget this. We finally got it all worked out for our region. I came in one day to the office in Indianapolis and my boss was in my office and I was distracted. I didn't think anything of it, but my boss lived in New Jersey. So. That's a kiss of death, baby. If you walk in and the VP is in your office and it's not scheduled and he's from another market, you're Dundee. And I didn't even make the connection. He was, he was sitting there, head down. He goes, hey, Jason. I go, hey, John. And I go, what are you doing here? And he goes, uh... And he goes up and he turns my blinds, shuts my blinds, and locks the door. And I was like, we're about to fight? What's going on? He's like, we got to let you go. have several untoward comments about this one now, right? He goes, we got to let you go. And I was like, what does that mean, let me go? He's like, we're eliminating your position. He's like, I know you have a baby coming. I feel horrible about this. I'm like, what's going on? He's like, we're the lowest guy in the totem pole, seniority-wise. This other guy from Nationals is going to come here, but we've got some relocation options. You know, so they try to do the right thing, and they're like, hey, if you do relocation, we'll give you this money, and you'll move. I don't want to relocate. Like, I don't want to go to these other places. I'm not the guy that was willing to relocate for a job. I don't want to live in Albuquerque. You know what I mean? Like, you're going to give me an extra five grand a year? Like, what is that, what's that going to do for me? So, anyways, we ended up leaving, but I never forget that experience because, like you said, it made me realize I have no control. You know, I have one stream of income, which is insanity. People are like, oh, it's so safe. No, it's not. It's insanity. You have one string of income you can't control. I've got a little add-on for that. My mother, who is now in her early 80s and is suffering from Parkinson's, grew up in the 40s in Virginia in a small market. And she used to tell me when I graduated from college, hey, get on with a good job and stay there and you'll be okay. Yep. That is bullshit. It is. I used to hear the same stuff and it's insanity. So. Yeah, it is. And I empathize with you. And if you're listening to this and you work for Intel, Meta, McKinsey, Google, NPR, I'm sure iHeart's in there. I'm sure that I can label off Intel. I got a friend of mine in the business who is going through a struggle right now where he knows he's losing his gig in a major tech company that isn't performance related. That's why I exist at Mac Assets. It's why you exist. It's why we're doing what we're doing because we've been spanked by the mean guy in the corner. And it hurts. Yeah. It kills your psyche. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it puts you, start having some weird thoughts for sure. So, yeah. Let me ask you this. And I really don't know this question, this answer for you. As you look at real estate opportunities now, what asset classes and/or markets are you most focused on and why? Great question. I actually posted on this in LinkedIn a couple of days ago. So if you don't dig back, there was an article on the top 10 submarkets. I'm avoiding all the big boys. And there's a reason for that. And the reason is that we are a boutique shop. And as a boutique shop, 
my partner and I aren't going to play with a swinging hammer and a mallet that's going to win some of the deals. So I'm not going to operate in that world. I'm both an operator and a uh, uh, capital matchmaker, if you will. Mm -hmm. So I look for different things. Asset classes, I am very bullish on multifamily for many reasons. The first is scale. And I've got an ebook talking about this if you want. And scale for me stands for shelter, cash flow, appreciation, leverage, and equity. And I can go into great detail on all five of those elements. I'm bullish on parts of the Midwest and the mountain states. I've got a lot of stuff in the Sun Belt, and I'm kind of done down there. And the reason I'm done is I think that the pricing's over, overvalued. I think that cap rates for a four in Montgomery, Alabama are ridiculous, redonkulous, stupid, crazy. Yep. I don't like the excessive exuberance, to quote what Greenspan used to say, about the value of those markets and the hedge of migration, net migration trends. Then migration trends have, have arised from several things. One of them is generational shift in values. The folks who are uh, Gen Z and millennials value location more than those who are above them in the age scale. So some of that's already shaken out. I moved to Colorado in 1994 from Chicago, and we've received 50 to 100,000 new residents every year since then. Wow. No one's talking about that. Look yeah. at Phoenix, similar thing. Yep. And, and then I try to take a macro approach on weather, so I really don't go to hurricane markets. Yep. Couple reasons. One is I like to sleep at night. <laughs> Two is insurance costs are skyrocketing. Yeah. And they're gonna get worse. I saw a stat recently that said that I think the average cost per door has increased by two hundred, three hundred percent in insurance cost per annum in Florida, in Texas, in parts of Texas. Uh, so I avoid some of that. I'm a little bit of a contrarian if you don't know this yet, and, and I try to think for myself. So I'm really bullish on Kansas City. I'm really bullish on Denver. I'm bullish on Indy. Uh, we, we have a buy box right now. I'm working with a private equity guy out of Canada, and we've laid out a very specific buy box. And what we're looking for really kind of follows a central and mountain time zones, excluding hurricane markets. I'm not going to buy in New Orleans, I don't think. I've got to find a really compelling reason. Uh, Houston scares me, but there's so much demand there, and it's such a large metro that I'm playing ball there when I can. Yeah. Uh, I've actually got an opportunity now, and if people are interested in Houston, they can reach out and I can talk about it. Dallas, I think, is overinflated. I think that Denver's a great gym. I'm not touching Phoenix or Tucson. No one talks about this, but water is a huge problem. Yeah. Yep. The Western Governors Association is in a battle with the Biden administration about water rights. And what's the fight? Well, the headwaters are in Colorado. There's this little thing called Lake Mead. Yep. It's at a all-time low. Yep. The Hoover Dam might lose the ability to generate power in the next couple of years. What happens? Forget the population pain points. What happens to your investment when there's no power? Yep. There's actually a town in Arizona, in the county of Maricopa that's controlled by Scottsdale, that shut down their water this year. Don't hear about that. I never heard about that. A hundred people that live in an unincorporated part of Scottsdale lost all their water rights. That's crazy. Yeah. So I talk about it in the investor community. I say, oh, shut up. We'll be gone before that happens. Until you're not. Yeah. I'm going to buy crypto until SBF gets caught. Yeah. Yeah.
So um, Lake Mead, that's where the Hoover Dam is at, right? Yep. Outside of Vegas. Yeah, we were there, my wife and I and some friends, two or three years ago. First time I've ever been there. Haven't been back. And I, you know, I have no idea what I'm doing. I walk up there and I go, my God, this looks really low. And my buddy who lives out there now told me the same thing you just said. No one's talking about it. This thing's going to dry up. The amount of water usage is really heavy and no one's doing anything to slow it down. But it was so low and you could see where it had been, you know, higher I was like, man, it's pretty, but it's like way, way down there. It's really low. So Yeah. And then from something that you can really quantify, affordability index. Yeah. You know, uh, one of the reasons we're bullish on Kansas City and I own property in the metro is that it's the lowest in the top 20 markets on affordability, according to RealPage Analytics. So in other words, just like 20 cents of your income dollar goes to housing. Something, I don't quite remember the exact number, so don't quote me on that as a, as yeah. a gospel. In New York and San Fran and in Phoenix, I think Phoenix is right up there as well. It's like thirty nine forty two. As a residential broker, residential mortgage rates won't lend if your cost of housing against your gross income is more than thirty percent of your gross. Yeah. So think about that. If your affordability is in the forties of your gross, that means you're paying fifteen points in taxes off the top which means you're really paying more than one entire paycheck just to pay the rent. Yeah. What happens? Now, we know in COVID what happened. As a population, we made a decision not to let everybody go bankrupt and go in a Great Depression. And politically, I support that decision. Some might, some might not. Yeah. But the reality is that when that came off, when we came off of the government teat, we've, we've gotten a ramp up. Yeah. Where's it going to go next? And I don't want to have my tenants and my residents committed to government policy yeah. right or wrong i don't care yeah. i'm not a libertarian i'm not a full-on Republican. i'm not a full-on democrat i'm yeah. a business guy yeah and what i care about is that my residents can pay their bills without help from a third party if that's the product i'm selling yeah, or support rate. there 100 percent. so i figured i would yeah <laughs> well, let me ask you this this is something you and i off this show have talked about a whole bunch and i've enjoyed it uh, what simple marketing strategies and tactics have initially allowed you getting getting traction, attracting new investors to what you're doing? What an interesting question. So I'm an advertising guy. I have a degree in advertising. I worked in the belly of the beast for 20 plus years. And this is my biggest pain point. I'm a bad marketer. It hurts me. I worked at some of the best agencies in the world. Yeah. At some of the biggest agencies, I worked on some of the marquee accounts like Allstate, United, Seven Up, Boston Market, Toyota, General Motors, Ford, Alaska Airlines. I can the McDonald's. Yeah. Good God, I know what I'm doing. The yeah. challenge in this is that it's not marquee brands. Yeah. And so for me, the thing that I've finally gotten to is an imposter syndrome hurdle. Yeah. As and let's get real for a second. As an executive. I never wanted anybody to see me as unprofessional. Yeah. And what I have come to learn through this journey is that that is a bullshit phrase. Professional is a bullshit phrase. Yep, I agree. What does it mean? It means non-human automaton. The professional came in, hey, I was a professional. I flew into a market one time, didn't announce myself, came in, it, it was actually Kansas City, speaking of that. Flew into the airport, drove to my office, my rep comes in, and I'm like, 
This is your last day in this career. Well, that was professional. Yeah. Wasn't very human. Yeah. You know, and I was wearing the suit and the $500 Bruno Molly wingtips and, you know, I looked really good. <laughs> yeah. I don't think remembers any of that. So the reality is that the, the marketing things that I think that are the most valuable are those which are authentic. And have your voice connected to the messaging. And I've struggled really, really a great deal with the messaging. But what I've come out with is there's a ton of guys like me who are super successful in corporate America and didn't know what to do with their money. And they didn't have time to invest their commission checks every month. Yep. I used to literally, and I was recording some stuff yesterday for a show, I used to literally invest Twenty to fifty thousand dollars a month with my broker, and I didn't know what in the world I was doing with that money, and I was spraying and praying. And he was telling me that I didn't have enough to get a portfolio. Uh, then, at the time of my divorce, when I'm, I gave my wife two thirds of my net worth because I wanted to make sure that she was always going to be safe and I can rebuild it, yeah. and I have, yeah. and I wanted my children at all times protected from both households. Yeah. And so my broker's like, there is no alternative. It's called Tina. I'll never forget that sentence. It's called Tina. And what he was telling me was that there's nowhere to invest but the stock market. We have a monopoly. And then I started thinking about it. In the game of a monopoly, what do we buy? <laughs> Hotels. <laughs> after buying what? Uh, after buying houses. After buying what? Land. Land. Real estate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Monopoly was built and created during the Depression by, I think it's Hasbro. Yeah. And it was built as a way, part of the ethos of Monopoly was it was going to teach people how to make money. Yeah. I used it with my kids forever to teach them things. And by the way, the bank always wins. Yeah, they do. And if you don't play Monopoly with the free parking in the middle and you put all your fines in the free we parking, do. you got to do it that way. I love it that way. So good. <laughs> awesome, man. Well, you know, what's funny is it took me a long time, and, and you and I have talked about this topic before, but it took me a long time to realize that just being yourself, authentic to yourself, unapologetically yourself with your marketing and your messaging it's actually a really good thing because it creates extreme polarity, right? It's half the people or a percentage of the people will be really attracted to what you're doing and everybody else will be repelled by it. And that's actually exactly what you want. This whole, I need to have messaging for everybody. It's not a real thing. You're, you're going to spend a lot of time, energy and money and effort and not really make any progress and go, man, what am I doing wrong? Well, you're, you're saying this, but that's not really what you think, or you're saying this is okay. And you don't really believe that just be yourself. And in that comes the great uh, traction. So I struggled with yeah, and I still struggle with I still struggle with that every day. It doesn't seem like it would work, but it does work. And it does. Things special about me. There's nothing special about you, but there actually is something special about both of us and all of us. All of our stories are different. All of our perspectives are different. That in lies the secret sauce. And it doesn't seem like it would be that easy, but it's really that easy. And it's really that hard. Yep. Yep, it's a because every each and every one of us get up in the morning and we decide what we're going to be that day. Yep. I remember when I was making a lot of money, I used to get up in the morning and look myself in the mirror and say, I'm a sales executive making 
X dollars a year. The dollar amount doesn't matter. And I would try to create value in myself by my W-2 income. Yeah. And you know what? When my when I got divorced and I was talking with my kids, they would say to me, Daddy, and they were pretty young at the time, Daddy, I love you a whole lot more than when you were working all the time. Where's the value? Yeah. You know, uh, my son's going to school in Scotland and my daughter goes to school in New Jersey and I've got two stepchildren that are in different cities. And so now I've got these kids that are raised or real close to it on the entry path of adulthood. Yeah. And they reach out to me now and they never ask how much money I've made this year. Yeah. And they never ask what my portfolio is doing. Yep. They ask about my business. How's my business going? Yeah. Yeah. I had to learn that lesson. I think all of us do. Yep. And if you're out there in corporate America thinking, I am the shit because I'm making a million dollars a year, let me tell you, it doesn't last. And if you don't take care of that money, you're going to have a problem. Yep. And I used to lay awake at night trying to figure out how to steward my money. And that's how I approach it. Is, well, how do we steward it? Yep. It's a crucial thing. Absolutely. Good stuff. All right. I'm going to throw you a bit of a curveball here. It won't upset you. You'll like it, but changing gears. <laughs> Looking back right now to the beginning of this journey with real estate investing, what would you say the biggest mistake is you've made with marketing or maybe your biggest regret? With marketing? Yeah. Yep. Okay. Because you're a marketing guy and you're a little agency owner and I support the little guy. You're not going to be bought by Publicis or by Gray or by- not for sale. <laughs> YPP. Not for sale, but I tell you, if they come knocking, you ought to sell it and run. <laughs> Live out the non-compete. I've seen lots of guys make bank on that. Anyway, <laughs> we digress. The biggest mistake in marketing has been not doing it. Yeah. You know, Robert Frost talks about two roads diverge in a wood and be one travel I stood and looked down one as far as I could to where it bent in the undergrowth. And he took a path, right? And this poem, we all know this poem. It's infamous and it's great. What he's talking about is regret and variability and my biggest regret is not realizing sooner that my skill set about understanding a deal underwriting analyzing is secondary to my marketing skill set yep. and as a small business owner and entrepreneur you have to have a customer base but you've got to have a product and so the balance is which do you spend the energy on product or customer i spent energy on product first yep. and now i'm starting to spend energy on customer my partner and I are very much focused on acquiring a thousand doors this year. He comes to me from an institutional background as an underwriter and asset manager and worked with some of the biggest boys on Wall Street with a master's in real estate from Fordham. And I think our product is finally nailed. Yes. So I'm really excited to be turning up the volume on the marketing side. And that's going to happen through authenticity, events like this. Yep. I've got some eBooks written. I'm going to publish some more tools that I'm that I'm in the pro final stages on. I'm going to put together a course on what to know and how to break your golden handcuffs. I'm launching a podcast that's going to be entitled Breaking Break. Keep screwing up the name. I got to get this right. Break your golden handcuffs. <laughs> You'll appreciate this. Totally off subject. I was on a podcast the other day as the as the guest. This guy says, "Yeah, I understand you've written a book. Tell us about it." I forgot the name. My mind is blank. I literally said. It's over there on my floor, but I can't see it. I don't remember the name. And he was like, oh, and I was like, I'm being real. My mind's foggy right now. Then I was like, oh, yeah, here it is. Like a while later, I finally could see it. But I was like, I can't remember the name right now. So Were you hungover, Jason? No, I was just, I got a lot going on, man. So 
I saw the recording, the Neil Wabawa recording recently. You know what I'm talking about. And yeah. Biggest... I might I might have possibly, perchance, maybe pulled a 1970s unauthorized taping like a Grateful Dead concert. With my technology. <laughs> Perhaps, maybe. I no, no admittance. But the biggest takeaway I had from that is not what you think. He actually said that, and I don't know if it's a real stat or not, but he said like 96% of people invest emotionally. And I was like, oh, that's really interesting. So, Well, let's dive into that for a second. Let's talk about that. Yeah, It's interesting because it makes that thing you just mentioned super important. Curating that audience and building that tribe for me, for my approach, for my other business, which is going to be raising capital, it's going to be focused on the tribe first for that reason, because that's, it makes a lot of sense with me. I look at my own journey in this business and go, he's right. It makes a lot of sense. How do you buy stocks? Through Vanguard? Not emotionally, really. Well, I don't know. Do you pick them? No, I usually go mutual fund. Uh-huh. Why? I guess there's an emotional connection to kind of the diversification of the portfolio with like what they're trying to focus on. So let me give you three words. Let me give you three words and you pick which word works for you. Good. Risk, reward, safety. Well, uh, reward. You're going for reward. Yeah. So you're buying based on the past track record. Yeah. And what and my gut tells me the future might be, which could be complete BS. So that's how I work. Right. So all of us are this way. All of us. And... I think that my job is to take the analytics apart enough for my investors to see that their emotions are warranted. Yeah. I'm in the middle of a negotiation right now with this seller, and I made an offer. I made the offer at his price because I thought it was a little bit of a stretch, but it was a realistic price. Yeah. They sat on the offer for 10 days and came back and said, we want better terms. I said, nope, because the market's not changing. Yeah. One of my consultants I was talking with is like, oh, they're jerking us around. They're yanking us around. And I'm like, back off of our emotion. Our emotion doesn't matter. Yeah. We can play to theirs or we can use ours as a blinder. Yeah. So while investors use emotions to make decisions, it's really crucial that as an operator, I don't. Yeah. Well said. Yeah. And I use data. And uh, Neil Bawa, the, the nerd and geek that he is and the brilliant mind behind his brain or the brilliant mind inside his, inside his head, rather, taught me a lot too. And, and one of the things is that the data never lies. Yeah. And as an investor, when you look at this thing just from an emotional lens, it's challenging. Yeah. Well, kind of funny, this is unrelated again, but when I look at the, the open rates and the engagement from my best stuff I put out there, it's always when I'm documenting my own failure. People love that shit, right? It's so weird, but it, I think it brings people close. You always hear people in every industry, real estate investing business, talk about success. People are, you know, shy away from talking about the big failures. But when you put it out there, if I make a, an email, it's about a failure and I put a little curiosity in there, it's going to absolutely blow up. It just, it goes bonkers. I'm like, people love seeing me struggle and fail but not for the wrong reasons. I don't think anybody's rooting for my failure because the, the way that story answers can be disappointed when it doesn't happen because I just have no off switch, but it makes me real and it makes me authentic and it attracts people to me. So yeah, it's just a really cool lesson and I hope somebody hears that and goes, you know, I need to say, start making 
uh, taking more chances. So let's let's talk about failures with me for a second. I had a whopper that put me down on my gut for about six months. Yep. I lost $150,000 in earnest money last summer. The Ooh. first phone call I got back after my honeymoon with my new wife. Oh my God. I was gone for nine days in Panama on a private beach with private chef. Amazing <laughs> honeymoon. It just peace. There was no cell service on the island, so I couldn't know what happened. There you go. It was epic. If anybody wants to know about it, reach out to me offline. I'll tell you all about it. <laughs> but you got to reach out to me. I'm going to put you in my funnel before you get the data. There you go. <laughs> and I came in. First phone call was, hey, the 1031 didn't materialize. Oh, shit. Yeah. 1031 was $3.5 million on a, do I think it was a $10 million raise? And the seller refused to give us an extension. I lost 150 grand in one phone call because somebody else made a decision and we didn't have a big enough backup in our capital stack. Yeah. And the knife was falling on the interest rates and every investor and his brother was scared. It took me a long time to get back up from that. Uh, forget the economic loss, it's the emotional one. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So work is a four letter word. Hard is a four letter word. Poor is a four letter word. And so is rich. Choose your hard. You know, absolutely. Very good stuff, man. This is a, this is a fun show. So here's another curveball for you. And I know you will not disappoint. Okay. <laughs> can you, I shouldn't say, can you, are you willing to share a story on this podcast right here, right now about your journey that you haven't shared publicly before? It can be funny, happy, sad, whatever you want to. We're just looking for something new that no one else has heard. Great question. Thank you, brother. That in case you, your listeners don't know is the, is the speaker training for, let me think of an answer. <laughs> <laughs> You know, and then you respond with the reporter's name and you kind of trill off into your own thing. <laughs> I just talked about this LOI negotiation and it's, it's a real story. It's real time. And the decision process we go into, I believe that the Fed is going to continue to raise rates. I want to buy sooner than later, but I am buying only fixed debt product. Mm -hmm. It's becoming challenging to get anything to underwrite. I've got a deal that's underwritten, that's fallen out of contract the first time because of the Fed. I've got a seller who's skittish, and they want me to put hard EMD down on PSA without any due diligence. Not ever something that I'm interested in doing. In the booms of 21, I walked away from being a general partner in an Atlanta deal where they wanted a million dollars hard at PSA. I'm sorry, they wanted a million dollars hard at LOI signing. And I said no. I'm not going to be part of that unnecessary risk. Yeah. That's desperation. Yeah. And so I think the story is that you can see a lot of desperation in people. And I had to make a hard decision that I might not make any income for another 90 or 120 days based on that decision. Yeah. However, making that decision is the best thing to do. Yep. And I made a conscious decision the broker's playing with me a little bit and I'm going to play back and he's trying to bully me and I recognize it. And, you know, I used to negotiate with NFL attorneys. I'm not going to get bullied. 
Yeah. I used to negotiate with hedge fund owners that were Russian oligarchs. You just got to be patient. Yeah. And I'm going to let this deal fall apart and I'm going to come back to it. Yeah. Very cool. All right. Um, let's say you have a conversation with a newbie, somebody that's bright eyed and bushy tailed about raising capital. It's the greatest thing in the world. You can give them one piece <laughs> of advice from the beginning about what they should do with their marketing. What'd you say to them? What's the advice about doing their marketing? Yeah, for somebody brand new getting into the capital raising game. Hire intentionally inspirational. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, on a serious note, uh, actually, it really, really did help me when I hired your team to consolidate some of my thinking. I would say, be yourself, be authentic. Don't try to pitch something you don't know. Yeah. You know, one of the things about being a sales guy and being a capital raiser is being a sales guy. Yeah. So let's go back to corporate sales training 101. What product can you never sell well? Product you don't believe in. Exactly. Yeah. And if you don't believe in the product, and if you're brand new and you're 22 and you're trying to do this for the first time, the product is you. Yeah. Yeah. If you don't believe in the product, you can't be successful. So you got to have belief in the product. And that's why I spent my first several years focused more on product than I did marketing. Yeah. It's really good advice because, yeah, I, I tell people sometimes, I always go on, I do Zoom calls only. People are always like, call me, I won't call anybody. Unless you're in my inner, inner circle, but I won't call anybody. It's in calls only. Hey, Jason, call me after this, will you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when I tell people, the reason why I'm always on video from a sales standpoint is because whoever's watching behind the screen, or sometimes there's six of them, I'll walk into a meeting for a new business call on here, and there'll be six people. I'm like, I don't even know who's on here. There, No one is going to ever look at me and be like, this guy doesn't believe in what he's saying. People are going to say, that guy is drunk on his own belief. We may not want it or think we need it now, but this guy is sold on what he's doing because I built the whole damn thing from scratch. So people seeing that you believe in what you're saying matters more than if even they believe in it, I think. So it's really good advice. I worked for a billionaire who uh, founded a company called Westwood One, a guy named Norm Pattis. Outstanding individual, crazy passionate. Yeah. I'll never forget at one point in time when we were in a conference room, he came in to talk to the regional managers during a, a training session for the upcoming year. We were all doing our thing. PowerPoints galore. He walks in, throws out these little bitty buttons, and the buttons say, you gotta love it, L-U-V. And what he said was absolutely accurate. Without passion, nothing moves forward. Yep. Absolutely. So in order to sell something, you gotta be passionate about it. Absolutely. And I've quit several jobs in corporate America because I was like, I don't believe in the product. You guys are not authentic about the product. I, I'm out because I'm not right. going to be good at it. So, And you know, there's this phrase of no like, and trust that circulates around every sales environment. You got to know, like, and trust. Or if you're a Keller agent at Keller Williams or it's you got to afford friends, something, I don't even remember, relationships and dreams, you know, yeah. all this BS. You don't have to like the person you buy from. I agree. No one ever has to trust that. them. Yeah. You're the only person I've ever heard say that in addition to me. I've always been like, the like thing is optional. If you don't yes. help you and you don't like me personally, you might still hire me. Right? So I just bought a car. I bought a car right before, right? The best time to buy a car is between Christmas and New Year's, by the way. Oh, yeah. And I bought a car from the dealership and it, it's a used car. And I was going in to test drive it and just make a decision. 
and I found what I wanted at the price I wanted, so I bought it. Yeah. I didn't like the sales guy at yeah. all. Yep. He just helps you get what you need, and it's over. So I didn't even trust him. <laughs> but the product was valuable. Yeah. And he treated me well enough to not make me walk away. Yeah. Yep. Okay. So sometimes you don't have to like David. You just got to trust me. You're pretty likable, though. You've grown on me like like a fungus, if you will. Oh, Jesus. People either love me or hate me because I can be acerbic. Because I call, I call a ball a ball and strike a strike. And if you're stupid, I'm going to look at you like you're dumbass. And I'm going to say, oh, okay. And yeah. then people are like, well, he's mean. Eh, yeah. Fuck off. Yeah, I like it. I really do. I appreciate it. <laughs> There's the F-bomb for you. <laughs> you go. All right, so we are recording this right at the tail end of February. By the way, my least favorite month of the year. I hate you, February. But we're at the end of February 2023. As you look forward to the rest of this calendar year, David, what are you most focused on with your business? Well, I mentioned earlier in the deal, I'm looking right at my 2023 values, priorities, and goals on my wall directly above my computer. Go. And I broke it down into several segments, and one of them is acquire a 1,000 doors. One of them is to launch fund of funds, which I'll be doing later this year. I'm going to spend a great deal of energy and effort marketing. And now that my partner is on board, we're going to blow this thing exponentially. Love it. I do believe there is blood in the streets and there are deals to be made if you focus on what your thesis is. There's distressed deals out there. They're coming. Not all of them are going to be perfect, but there are some deals. Yeah, I'm starting to hear more and more weekly about capital calls and people making, getting in bad situations. And yeah, I mean, like anytime there's tough times with the market or an industry, the week shake out pretty early. So I got a deal that is coming forward that I'm working with some friends on. They're buying it directly from the bank. It's $20 million. It's an acquisition $20 million below what the other person put into it. And we expect to deliver obscene returns. Nice. Yeah. So there's a reason for your listeners to reach out to me. There you go. I like it. Transitioning into that, uh, if people do want to reach out to you for one of many good reasons you've given them today, what are the best ways they can go about doing so? MacAssets.com. M-A-C assets with an S.com. The email info at MacAssets will always be answered. And I'm on all the social channels, but the best place is my website. There you go. And I've got a couple of things in case you want to learn more. I wrote an ebook, How Ugly Apartments Deliver Beautiful Returns, in which I talk in depth about scale. I put out a methodology behind the scenes, if you will, of how Mac Assets does due diligence. And it's not the BS of, oh, this is what we do for a property, it's how Mac assets are intellectual property around what our decision-making, what our processes are. So if you want to learn how we think, because that's how you get trust, that's what we did. Awesome. Well, David, uh, it's been a lot of fun. It's been a great episode. I think anybody listening or watching will agree. Thank you for coming on, my friend. Hey, great great to be here and look forward to having you on talking about golden handcuffs and FedEx. Sounds good, man. Thank you for listening to this episode of the show. I had a great time making it and I hope you really enjoyed yourself listening to it. 
you want to keep up with all things Real Estate Investor Marketing Stories podcast related, I encourage you strongly to go to reimarketingstories.com and signing up for our podcast newsletter. We will simply keep you up to date with what's going on with the show, new episodes, and things like that. reimarketingstories.com. So hopefully today's episode and the other episodes that you'll listen to will remind you that as a real estate investor, everybody starts at the beginning, okay? Um, Our guest today and the other guests that you will hear on this show will share their real story, right? They'll tell you what worked, what didn't work. And I want you to remember one thing if you remember nothing else today. It's possible for you to, okay? Never stop going and keep following your passion. Finally, today's show has been brought to you by CapitalRaisingAutomations.com. If you're an active capital raiser and you are ready to learn the three areas that are holding you back from raising more capital, I strongly suggest you check out CapitalRaisingAutomations.com. Check out our free 10-minute video there, and you let me know if it doesn't provide you value. I'm sure it will. All right, thanks again for listening to the show this week. Hope to see you next time. Take care.